Hey true crime enthusiasts, I'm Alexa Morden. I'm Katie Allen Salt and we're the hosts of The 98%, the podcast that reveals the untold, brutally honest realities of the 98% of actors who don't earn their main income from acting. In our Halloween special, we plunge into Hollywood's dark side, exposing some real-life murders and hidden realities behind the glitz and glamour. Plus, don't miss season 5's mini-series where we uncover the shocking accounts of abuse and misconduct in the entertainment industry that you won't hear in the mainstream. Join us for our true crime special as we continue to lift the curtain on the hidden truths of showbiz. You can find the 98% wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. With our homework. (laughs) Olivia's finished her homework. Yeah, I was just telling Katie, it feels like my homework's finished before I go on vacation. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if this episode's going to end up going up this week or like the full week that I'm on vacation, but in any event, uh, this is like my vacation episode because I'm leaving (laughs) on Thursday of this week and I'll be gone for 10 days, so we're pre-recording, but... Yeah, I just feel like my homework's done. Like, once this is done, Your homework like, is done. You did it. I did it. Check that off the list. Yeah, I can... Exactly. It was a long list of uh, shit that has to get done. Going on vacation when you're, like, a real adult is a lot more work than when you're, like, a 20-year-old adult. Yeah, it's not just, like, throwing your bathing suit in a bag and going anywhere. No, I feel like I had... Like, I literally printed out... I'll show you this. It's a November calendar... And I have, like, a two-week plan leading up to the day we fly out of, like, on this day I have to do this, this day I have to do this, this appointment, this animal needs to get dropped off. There's just, like, a checklist. (laughs) Good lord. I'm excited for those animal drop-offs, one in particular. No, one of my animals is going to Katie's. We can all guess which one. It's the kitten. Marshall's going to imagine me taking the fucking Chihuahua. You have too many cats. You have one cat now, but like before you had cats. way too many cats for that, for sure. And Frankie, actually. I have a Frankie. That's yeah. the bigger concern. I didn't even think of that. Frankie would just eat her like a... You'd have sandwich. no dog to come yeah. home to. No, peanut butter is going to... For if you're new here, peanut butter is my three and a half pound chihuahua. Um, yeah. And she's going to my parents' house for a couple days. And then she's actually going to my grandma's for... I was actually... When you week. were like, and then I was like, please say grandma, please mm-hmm. say grandma. Yeah. She's going to eat so much chicken. She's going to have the best time. And for the record, Olivia's grandma feeds... I don't know if this is the what we're talking about, but her grandma feeds her like a whole chicken breast. Right off the table. Yeah, but again, this dog is three and a half pounds. Wrong grandma. A chicken breast is like a pound. Wrong grandma. So she probably won't get that at my grandma's because she's going to my other grandma's house. Oh, that's... And uh... She was, like, sick one time at my grandma's house, like, threw up. And so now my grandma's, like, terrified to feed her anything or terrified that she's going to get sick. She's a tiny dog, and so she does get sick often. Like, she threw up in the middle of the night last night. There's no reason for it. She had no people food. She just was like, oh, I'm tiny and my stomach hurts. Um, (laughs) Oh, I'm little. It happens. But, yeah, she's going to all her favorite places. That's so cute. Um, she hates me, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> she's always hated me, and that's yeah, fine. We just weird. don't get along. She just... That's whatever. Like, her goal in life is to bite me. 
Yeah, I don't know that she actually would, but she certainly comes close. You know, there's been a few times where I think I've covered for her. Okay. She's gotten more than close. I think she would like to. I don't know why she doesn't like you, but she does give you attitude. Yeah, I've gotten it since day one. I think it's because the day you got her, I put her in a dinosaur costume. It's possible. She doesn't forget. She's holding a crutch. But anyways, welcome back, everyone. Uh, I actually noticed some new Instagram followers recently, so thank you so much for following us on Instagram. Hello. We're really close to 2,000 followers, and I'm feeling a little bit like more motivated in the Instagram game lately, so um, follow us on Instagram. I'm going to start posting a little bit more, I promise. Maybe post a few thirst traps from your trip. I might. You may be able to see me on the beach um, in Hawaii, but mostly just case stuff. And then I'm hoping that Katie and I can get together and film some more stuff together because I know you guys like to see us, especially together. We like to see us together, too. Um, But yeah, give us a follow on Instagram at Podcast by Proxy. Today is a case suggestion that actually came from Instagram. Um, And I did want to open it up because I know that the person who suggested this case specifically said that I could use their name. name. Yeah, it's Trish. Um, Trish has actually suggested a few cases for us in the past. Um, So thank you so much, Trish. You always give us really awesome case suggestions um, and are always like interacting with us on Instagram. Does not go noticed. Um, But yeah, so this is Trish's episode case suggestion today. And I was telling Katie that it's actually a vacation episode. Um... So yeah. She's on brand, people. Yeah, this is my vacation episode for while I'm on vacation. Uh, this one is definitely, I'm going to use the term cautionary tale, and I want to start it off by saying there will be absolutely no victim blaming in this episode. It's kind of one of those cases where, you know, the girls are young, they're 17, 18 years old, there's maybe some yes. choices made that I've kind of seen on the internet, like... You know, why would you do this? Why would you make this choice? Why would you do this? And it's like, we've all been 17 years old. They're young. We've all been 17 years old. We're going to do no victim blaming. And we're just. We're going to use this as a cautionary tale. Um, There's many decisions made in this episode that I'm like, yeah, I would have done that. I probably did do something like that. Mm -hmm. Can we just also make note that there has finally been uh, someone charged in the Natalie Holloway case? Yes, because that is just like huge. And although, yes, I get it, I get that it might not have happened yesterday, but we've never really touched on that. And I think that's a case that you and I can both say. Growing up, we saw in like the front of papers, and you could just recognize that beautiful blonde hair, the black shirt off her shoulders. We just all know that photo that circulated for a long time. And yes, just hearing the details come out of what was done um, was just horrific. Yes. But I'm also glad there's justice for her family that finally someone is being held accountable. Yeah, so it was the guy, Joran Vandersloot, from, mm-hmm. he's Dutch, right? Um, I believe he is Dutch, yes. Yeah, so if you don't know the case, this case that I'm actually telling today is, a lot of people consider it like the Canadian Natalie Holloway case. I saw that kind of like labeled a few times when I was doing the research. Um, okay. very much similar in terms of like someone, this is a Canadian girl, she's going to Bermuda. Um, so it's, it's very similar to the Natalie Holloway case, although the, the legal aftermath is a lot different and it's going to enrage literally every single person that's listening to this episode. I also can't Great. believe that it's not a 
more well-known case because of the literal legal atrocities that occur. Like, it should hmm. be more widely known. Um, Side note, too, before we start, because this is going to sound insensitive, I'm sure, to someone out there otherwise. Hmm. Whenever I hear the word Bermuda, all I think of is, like, Bermuda, Bahamas. Sure. That's all I think of sure. every time. It's just one of those words that has, like, an immediate. I think that's fair. I think that's all right. Was that in, like, the Muppets or something? I have no idea. I don't remember. Perhaps. <laughs> it was, like, Muppets with, like, the Beach Boys or something. It was fun. Yeah, sorry. I'm just doing a little bit of reading on this. So, yeah, it looks like this person that was um, charged with Natalie Holloway's murder was always the Mm -hmm. prime suspect in her disappearance and was actually convicted uh, in the 2010 killing of Stefani Flores Ramirez in Peru. So this person has committed crimes since um, Natalie Holloway, which Lord help us all. Mm-hmm. Uh, again not unlike the case that we're going to talk about today so i think let's just get right into it uh we actually do have quite okay. a bit of ground to cover today um done so i'm talking today about the murder of rebecca aka becky middleton becky okay rebecca jane middleton was born on june 27th 1979 to her parents dave middleton and cindy bennett Becky, as she was known to her family, I'm going to refer to her as Becky throughout the remainder of the episode, was the youngest of three children, and uh, she had two older brothers. When her parents, Dave and Cindy, split up when Becky was only 13, all three of the children uh, went to live with their mother, Cindy, full-time, but it seems like they still had a really good relationship with their father, Dave. The family grew up in the small town of Belleville, Ontario, which is just off the shore of Lake Ontario. Belleville is ideally situated between Toronto and Montreal, kind of like right in the middle, and it's less than one hour from the U.S. border. I think we drove through there when we were driving across. Yeah, that would make sense. Uh, The population of Belleville, Ontario in 2021 was around 55,000 people, so it's an average city, if you will. Yeah. Nothing crazy. Becky Middleton was described as sociable and fun to be around. Um, She was a seeing and skiing and sailing enthusiast. And honestly, it just seemed like she was a pretty typical, like, 16, 17-year-old, really good girl. Nothing nothing stood out, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. In the summer of 1996, uh, Becky was hoping to take kind of like the trip of a lifetime to Bermuda with her best friend Jasmine Means. Jasmine's father, Rick, had recently gotten remarried and had moved to what's called Flats, Bermuda. And so the girls had somewhere to stay. They had parental supervision. It was kind of like a really ideal situation. It's amazing. Right? Super cool. If I had a friend that had a dad that lived somewhere super tropical, I would have been begging to go. Right? Like, my best friend in school's dad lived in Vancouver. That's the farthest we went when school wasn't on. (laughs) So, being that it was her 17th birthday coming up, her parents decided to gift Becky with a six-week trip to Bermuda with Jasmine to go stay over the summer with Jasmine in Bermuda, which is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Six weeks? Oh, my God. A long time. 
Bermuda, uh, for those unaware, is a self-governing British territory located in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, It's said to be a really beautiful island. I've personally never been there. However, it is generally considered a very safe place to visit. Bermuda likes to pride itself on having a very low crime rate. It's often visited by people who are like quite wealthy, um, just in general known for being very safe. Okay. So the girls leave for their Bermuda vacation on June 22nd, 1996. Becky, of course, turned 17 only five days later on June 27th. And by all accounts, like the first two weeks of their trip was amazing. The girls roamed around, they explored beaches, they went swimming. Um, They actually met a couple of English guys who were also spending their summer holidays on the island and they became quite quick friends with them. It seemed like these guys were like close-ish in age and the girls like really bonded with them and they were hanging out. Um, These guys have nothing to do with what happens in the story. Just like preface, they were just like some good guys that the girls were partying with. (laughs) I didn't think so by the way you were explaining them. (laughs) They were just like a couple of other teenagers that they met and it seems pretty ideal. Yeah, they were two just probably like cute boys you meet on vacation and hang out with. Yep. Love that for them. I Same. That's pretty much how I felt about it. I was like, fucking love that for you girlies. <laughs> Get, Get it, girl. girly pops. <laughs> on July 2nd, so a couple of weeks after they were there, the four of them, so Becky, Jasmine, and these two boys, had planned to meet at a local pub to hang out for the evening. Uh, Their original plans were that they were going to take a boat out into the ocean and go swimming, uh, but it started raining, so they decided to change plans. Jasmine's father dropped the girls off at the White Horse Tavern pub at around 7 p.m. That's where they were meeting these two boys to hang out, have some drinks for the night, whatever. Yeah, like play pool, whatever. It's a tavern. Yep. Just hang out. Uh, Rick had told the girls to phone him before 1 a.m. so that he could come and pick them up. Okay. So the drinking age. Just nice dad. Super nice. He's like, phone me before 1, I'll come get you. 1 yeah, a.m. He's like, go ahead and drink. That's fine. <laughs> Literally. Just be safe. Yeah. So Jasmine at the time was 18 and Becky just turned 17. Um, and the drinking age in Bermuda was 18. So... Jasmine was technically of age and Becky basically just had no problem getting booze. Like yeah. she was served and they obviously got beers and went back to these boys' houses. Like they they were drinking and partying and they were having fun. Yeah. I It didn't sound like they were see blacking no problems out. with what they're doing uh, right now. They're just being teenagers. Like, yeah. So And I would be hard pressed if you in a room of like grown ass adults were like, who here drank underage? Right. And not 70% of that room would put their hand up. Yeah, I so. remember the local bar like where I grew up. I had been getting in there for years. Um, and then when I turned 19 and I went there and I was like, yeah, it's my 19th birthday. Woo! It was just like, like, what? What? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I mean, no, I didn't. I mean, look, I'm 19 again. <laughs> oh my God, it's my birthday again. So exciting. Uh, so after, now I will preface that story by saying I had a lot of older friends cause I worked at a grocery store with people that were like of age and I was always like very safe. It wasn't a, an unsafe, like wild thing. It was just like, 
I had older friends. That's so I, funny. That was like my exact situation. Yeah, it's like I wasn't being wild and wanting to go to the clubs. Yeah, we would just like, I again, people, these are like small town clubs too. They're not this is that a crazy. Bar. There are no clubs around it. It's one bar, single bar. Yeah, I went to like our one little what we called a nightclub that was out on the highway and it had like carpet in parts of it it had a non-windowed smoking room we love small towns yep oh yeah this one had a non-windowed smoking room upstairs <laughs> that's so funny hilarious uh, <laughs> i don't think they, they have no it ventilation it's just a foggy room with a ton of people in it talking it's so sad because that bar recently had a fire and so they redid a bunch of it and that smoking room upstairs is now gone oh my gosh ours also had a fire and then it just got bought out and torn down thumbs down but it had like multiple fires over the decades so sorry galaxy fair uh okay so they go to the white horse tavern pub again um you know, Becky is not technically of age, but they're good. They're, I mean, she's close to the drinking age, and they're just having a yeah, few beers. Yeah, she did it. They're having a few beers with their friends, whatever. Yeah. They leave the pub, and the girls decide to go and hang out at one of their new friend's houses. So they go to, like, hang out with these two guys at their house. They continue to have some beers with the guys. It's a very casual, chill night. Nothing wild. So after 1 a.m., Jasmine realizes that she hasn't checked in with her dad and she's missed curfew. <gasps> she is too scared to call Rick at this point because she doesn't want to get in trouble for not calling him before one o'clock. And the girls figure they can just call a cab and like sneak in the house and then just say that they got a ride home. I think that's pretty fair thought process for a 17, 18 year old. 100%. Like, Totally. Um, I am right there with these girls. Yeah. Do I think it's a safe option? No, of course not at the age I'm at now. No. Then I would have thought, we're being thoughtful. We're not waking him up. Of course. And like, hindsight is 2020, and I think that we yeah. can confidently say now as 30-year-olds that like, no matter what time it is, your parents would rather you just call. Yeah. Anybody listening to this who is young, um, don't be too scared to Even call your parents. Even if not young. Sure. If you feel unsafe or you're in a situation, I don't think your parents at any point in time would care if you called them and woke them up. I am 32 years old and I would still call my mom at 2 in the morning if I absolutely Agreed. To. For sure. Same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, of course, this is a very... I, again, I said it at the beginning of the episode, we are not... There ain't no blame game happening here. Um, it's just, yeah. So, that happened. Very typical for a 17, 18-year-old. They're like, we can call a cab, we can just sneak in the house, like, he'll never know that we were late, it's all good. So, around 2am, the girls call the cab. The dispatcher tells them that the cab is going to take around 20 minutes. However, they're waiting outside the house at this point, they're not waiting inside the house, they're like, I don't know, the guys have gone to bed, I'm not really sure, they're outside in like the rain, middle of the night, and they're waiting. Same. I think, I mean, I've done that before. If I've been at someone's house, I'm like, oh, we'll just wait for the cab outside. Then you call the cab and you find out it's like 20 minutes, it's not five. And you're like, yeah, fuck it. Well, I guess we're out here for 20 minutes. Yeah. And like, maybe you don't want the cab driver to not see you, miss the house, whatever. Yeah. So at around 2.30 a.m., the cab still hadn't showed up. So Jasmine called back. The dispatcher on the phone told her that the cab driver had driven by and didn't see them. 
Um, Jasmine told the dispatcher that she hadn't seen anybody drive by and the girls ordered another cab. The dispatcher says again that this cab is going to take about 20 minutes and this cab never shows up either. So by now, it's like close to 3 a.m. at this point. They've been outside in the rain alone waiting for like an hour. Like 40 minutes, 45 minutes, yeah. Yeah. And this is when a local man named Dean Laudamore rides by on his motorcycle and, like, sees the girls and stops to check on them. Like, hey, do you guys need help? What's going on? While he's talking to the girls, another bike pulls up with two men on it. And Dean says that, like, one of these men seemed to kind of take a liking to Becky. Now, it's important. I guess it's not important, but I should note that it was one very specific rule that the girls had while visiting the island of Rick's that they not get on the back of a strange man's motorcycle because this had been kind of a problem in the area that was known that girls, you know, could get taken or whatever because they accepted a ride on the back of a bike from a stranger. So it was like a rule that they were not supposed to do that. Yeah, if it's a known, like, ploy or trap, potentially to be abducted or trafficked or whatever, then yes, I get why he warned them. Yeah. So. I'm nervous now because now I know where you're going with this. Yeah. They, the girls knew that they were not supposed to accept rides from strangers because, of course, now at this point, these two bikes have pulled up. They're offering them a ride home. They know they're, they're like, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. However... The girls, I think, felt they were out of options. They really needed to get home. They've been waiting outside in the dark for an hour, um, and they accept the rides. So Becky ends up on the bike with the two men because she's quite small. Um, Becky was said to be quite petite, so she could kind of, like, fit on the bike with the two other guys. And Jasmine went on to the bike with Dean. Okay. And to the girls, it seemed like Dean knew these men, and he, you know, seemed really nice, so they were like, sure, whatever. So oh, Jasmine, he doesn't know them? Huh? I think, he doesn't? I think he knows them in the context of, like, this isn't a very big area and a lot of people know other people. But, like, they weren't traveling together no, that night? they were not. It was just a fluke that they pulled up a few minutes later? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. They weren't riding together. They just, like, pulled up and were like, oh, hey, man. They know of each and other. Then, yeah. They just, like, kind of saw that okay. there was a bike stopped and two girls and they wanted to see what was going on. Okay. So Jasmine gets on the back of the bike with Dean. Um, Becky gets on the back of the bike with the other two men. Um, Jasmine says that the two bikes were like near each other, following each other for quite a while. But eventually, like they kind of, it seems, started to race. And the other bike that Becky was on sped off and Jasmine lost sight of her. Hmm. So Jasmine gets back to the house. She is dropped off by Dean and Becky wasn't there yet. So her and Dean wait together outside. Dean's kind of like waiting with her for a while. And I think Jasmine eventually was like, it's fine. Like she'll show up. You can go. No big deal. So Jasmine's waiting outside for Becky. And she starts to get nervous when Becky still doesn't show up. Like, realistically they should have gotten there around the same time the other bike sped off so she kind of figured that becky would be there when she got there um 
or like seconds behind. Right. And so kind of like too yeah. much time passes. But Jasmine was also really scared to wake her dad up because she didn't want them to get in trouble for A, being late and not calling him and B, accepting rides from strangers. So she's, yeah, you know, scared it. to like tattle on them a bit, which again, been there. Same. Yeah. So time's ticking. Becky still never shows up. Jasmine at this point is panicking. So she decides that she didn't know what else to do. And she wakes up Rick to tell him that Becky is missing. She still does not tell him at this point how they, how they got home, like how she got home and how Becky ended up missing. She just says she can't find her. So Rick and Jasmine start searching for Becky. They are like walking around shouting her name. They asked anybody that they could find if they had seen her. Um, and again, like Jasmine still hadn't really been like fully honest with Rick at this point about what had happened. They were just like looking for Becky. Um, Jasmine was at this point kind of just hoping that they got lost and that they would eventually mm-hmm. just find the bike with Becky. Like, like they'd maybe come around the corner from walking around looking for her and she would just be like, oh, hey guys. Right. Yeah. They were yeah. really hoping that like, cause they didn't know the house and Becky didn't know the area that well, but like maybe she just got lost. So on the other side of town, we're going to like just go all the way over to the other side of town. At 3.30 a.m. on the same morning, July 3rd, 1996, the same time that Jasmine and Rick are scouring the town for Becky, a local DJ named Dana Rawlings is traveling home from a DJ gig and thought he saw something lying in the road. At first, he thought maybe it was an animal, but after he stopped and really looked, he realized that it was a young girl clinging to life. In the road near the bushes. So he rushes over and he finds the girl half naked lying in the fetal position by the side of the road in St. George's near the bushes. She was clinging to life. Her throat was cut. Um, and like trigger warning basically for all of the parts of the next part because it's very violent Um, the DJ actually tried to get some information from the girl, but her injuries, especially the slash to her throat was so severe that she could not speak. And when paramedics arrived on scene, they declared the victim dead. Yeah. I I don't know how you survive wounds like that. Yeah. Her body was literally described as mutilated. Your cat right now. I know. She's ridiculous. She's so dramatic. Oh, that's funny. Jasmine and Rick were looking for Jasmine still when they saw an ambulance zoom by and they really kind of got that like gut wrenching feeling. Sinking feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of like, oh no. I think we hear in documentaries when parents are like, you know, this thing happened and I knew. And I think at this point they're trying to stay positive because you really want to try and talk yourself out of that. Like, it's not connected. Like, we're going to find her. It's all good. Maybe she fell. Like, you're really trying not to go to worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, but they, yeah, they, they kind of just like, I think both got a sinking feeling. But they did continue their search for her until dawn. 
So the sun comes up on the morning of July 3rd, and Jasmine and Rick still haven't found Becky, so they eventually call the police to report her missing. And this is when the police basically would only tell them to go to the Ferry Reach police station. They wouldn't tell them anything else. And I think, again, Rick specifically just had this gut feeling that this wasn't good. Yep. So they arrive at the Ferry Reach police station and Rick tells Jasmine to stay in the car and goes into the police station. And this is when their worst fears came true. Rick was told by police that 17-year-old Rebecca Middleton was found the previous evening by the side of the road, brutally murdered. Rick went into the station, and this is where the police unzipped the body bag that they had put her in and had Rick identify her body. In this moment... He said he just began, like, screaming, yelling, punching anything around him. Jasmine was literally sitting in the car and could hear her dad yelling from inside the police station and said that he dry heaved the entire drive home. Imagine having to break that to everyone back home. And, like, you'd feel so responsible, even though it wasn't his or anybody else's fault but the fucking assholes that did this. Like, you've been entrusted, you know, by this girl's parents to keep her safe for six weeks, and I can't imagine. And they've gifted her this, like, amazing vacation. Mm -hmm. Like, it was supposed to be this once-in-a-lifetime thing, and it ended up being... I can't imagine. Life-altering for so many now. Yeah, and, like... Yeah, I, I tried not to go too heavy into it in, like, the descriptors, but it yeah. sounded like her wounds were really awful, and I can't imagine being him and having to see that on such a young girl, and ugh. It's, it's, it's just awful. All around awful. Yeah, that's... that poor man. Becky's father, Dave Middleton, was at work at a local utilities company in Belleville, Ontario, when he got a call from his former father-in-law, Becky's mother's, Becky's mother, Cindy's father. Dave was told by his father-in-law that Becky had been killed, and he just, like, could not believe it was true. Um, He said this phone call changed his life forever. I bet that's most parents' reactions at the beginning. They're like, no. Not possible. An autopsy was done on Rebecca Middleton's body and revealed, again, trigger warning um, for, like, sexual assault and, you know, violence. Becky had been raped, sodomized, tortured, and stabbed repeatedly. She was left to die on the side of the road that night. This was very intentional. Her cause of death was listed as being from shock and hemorrhage, or which is blood loss, as a result of the stabs and wounds that she received. Becky had approximately 16 stab wounds. Uh, these wounds specifically had cut her jugular vein and vital organs. She had approximately 19 superficial wounds to her neck area and on her head. Um, Specifically on her head, a serrated knife had been used to scrape and peck her skull. 
These wounds have been referred to as what's called Jamaican torture. And this torture would have been inflicted on Becky if she had refused to do what her killer or killers wanted her to do. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. It seems like perhaps she resisted uh, sexual advances towards her and she was tortured for that. Is what no, I, get, I was just really trying to register like what you said they that was mm-hmm. because it was a lot and it just was like, whoa. Yeah, I know. The police had numerous clues to begin the investigation of Becky's murder. Um, her clothes were found near the crime scene. They had found a bloody bra and a skirt and it appears that the clothes had been cut off of her. Oh. Yeah. Which also like led to the theory attack, to, yeah, that she, you know, resisted or refused sexual advances on her, and this was not received well. Jasmine was interviewed by police and said she didn't know the names of the two men who Becky left on the bike with, but she did know the name of the man that she had been riding with that evening, because um, we know his name is Dean. She told the police that Becky had gotten on the bike with two young black males. Uh, This was the first Rick had heard what happened because Jasmine still hadn't told him because she didn't want to get in trouble. So this police interview is like the first time that Rick actually heard the full story of how they had gotten home that night. That's going to break his heart. And how, yeah, how Becky had gone missing. The police then questioned Dean, who were was able to point them in the direction of the two men that Becky had been on the bike with that night, and they were identified as 21-year-old Kirk Mundy of Jamaica and 19-year-old Justice Smith. They also were able to find witnesses that confirmed seeing these two men near the crime scene. So... An eyewitness was able to tell police that he saw both Mundy and Smith on the bridge. This witness's car had broken down and the men stopped on their bike to chat with him. Um, And the man said that he could see Mundy had blood on his sleeve. Another witness who had been at work at the time also saw Mundy and Smith around 3.20 a.m. This witness said that there had been a white piece of cloth covering the bike's license plate um, and coincidentally Becky's white t-shirt that she had been wearing was missing from the crime scene. Strange. And we know her other clothes were cut off. So correct. Yeah. It would make sense if it was cut off to just be put over the license plate. Mm -hmm. Jeez. Yeah. It's this, this is a brutal murder. I mean, I feel like I say that every week, and they're all awful and brutal in their own way, but this one is, like, particularly... They're all really sad. They're all brutal. They they're all, are. like, we they say, all them, are. We we say, say that every week. week. This one's so sad. It's this sad. one's so bad. It's all awful. Humans need to do better. Within a week of Becky's murder, on July 10th, 1996, both Kirk Mundy and Justice Smith were arrested and detained for the murder of Rebecca Middleton. Uh, this is when it gets really infuriating. So, oh. it yeah, it gets no better from here. 
After being arrested, Kirk Mundy was questioned and immediately pointed the finger at 19-year-old Justice Smith. Kirk Mundy claimed he had been at home with his wife, um, who was pregnant at the time on the night of the murder. He told police that it was uh, Justice Smith who tossed the murder weapon, which was a knife, off the bridge. This knife was recovered and matched a set of knives found in a knife block in Smith's home, which had one knife missing. Hmm. So from these interviews alone, the Bermuda police concluded that Kirk Mundy had to have been an accessory to the crime and Justice Smith was the primary offender. However, Becky's clothes had been found at the scene and they had actually been sent to the RCMP in Canada to do testing on, to do DNA testing on. Okay. So... The Bermuda police do these interviews and they decide that it was Justice Smith who raped and killed Becky. Kirk Mundy didn't actively participate. They don't wait for DNA results. They do not wait for the but DNA to Everybody come back. knows they've been sent away. Correct. It's been sent away. It's being tested. Instead of waiting for it to come back, They, the AG, the Attorney General, gives Kirk Mundy a deal and says, in exchange for your testimony against your co-accused, Justice Smith, you can plead guilty to being an accessory to the murder of Rebecca Middleton, and we'll give you five years. (gasps) And then they charge Justice Smith with murder. And how long after until the DNA came in? So, on October the 16th, 1996, is when Kirk Mundy officially pled guilty to being an accessory. So, like, a couple months later. He's okay. sentenced to five years in prison. He accepts his deal. Uh-huh. Two days later. <gasps> two days later. The forensic analysis report comes back and shows that the only DNA found on Becky's clothes mm-hmm. at the crime scene is Kirk Mundy's. Bum, bum, bum. Justice Smith's DNA is not even there. Yeah, because he's just pointing the finger at him. I just cannot believe that he was able to cut a deal with the Attorney General, who at the time was Elliot Motley, to serve five years for being an accessory and is in exchange for his testimony against somebody when you were waiting for DNA evidence. Like... I'm aware that in the earlier 90s, earlier 90s, this is 96, it's technically the late 90s, DNA evidence wasn't as big as it is now. It wasn't as That was the year it became big. 96, 97 was the transition year for DNA. If you know you, what was the point of sending it if you weren't going to wait? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk about it in a little bit, but I think that (sighs) with this case specifically, because there is a massive... A massive push to get this, like, wrapped up. Yeah, you can tell the way they didn't even wait for DNA. Because they really pride themselves in Bermuda on safety, and they did not want this hanging over their head. They wanted this, like... Well, it's bad for tourism. Exactly. It's bad for tourism. So they wanted this wrapped up in a nutshell. 
yeah, tourism affects everybody there when that's like the primary economy is hotels, mm-hmm. events. Honestly, it reminds me a lot of Vegas because you can watch <laughs> documentaries and stuff on Vegas and how much Vegas like they will cover things up so that people will keep coming. Well, it's just like how you can't be pronounced dead in Disneyland. That's wild. Like you get taken outside the gates before you're pronounced dead. There's certain things that just big it's things like, happen. Why uh, is a place's reputation and money consistently more valuable than a human life to our society? I think we've been asking that question more and more as time goes on, and that's scary. I know. So, yeah, two days later, the forensic report obviously comes back. The DNA matches Kirk Mundy. He has already made a deal. He has already been, like, it. the sentencing is done. He has gone through court. Yeah, y'all fucked up. This is technically in, like, under Britain law because Bermuda is a British province. And so Mm -hmm. the same as Canadian law. Double jeopardy applies. He cannot be tried again for the same crime. But what was he charged with? Wasn't it second degree? No, he was charged with being an accessory. accessory. However, it's still the same crime. You can't be charged twice for the same crime. Yeah. So they confront him with this evidence. And he basically says that he... Oh, yeah. I had sex, like, I had consensual intercourse with Becky. She wanted to sleep with me. And then it was Smith who raped and killed her after. I, she, it was consensual. So why is his DNA not in there after you? No, that's a great question. Everybody. If that's the succession you're saying it happened in, then why aren't we visually able to test and see the same succession DNA. Yeah, so everybody knows news. Everybody knows this is a lie because <laughs> Justice Smith's DNA wasn't found anywhere near the body. However, there was no evidence to disprove this. And Kirk Mundy had already cut a deal with the AG. Like he, he was already done and dusted. Mm-hmm. So the police yeah. at this point actually try to get Mundy's deal revoked, uh, but it's too late. And like I said, due to the double jeopardy rule, he cannot be tried again for this crime. Yep. Unfortunately. So, so it gets worse. When you were getting into the DNA, I kind of figured that's the direction you were going in. Mm-hmm. In January of 1998... Uh, Bermuda attempts to charge Kirk Mundy with murder. So they do still try. Um, they know that they've fucked up and that double jeopardy applies. However, with this new forensic evidence, they're thinking like, maybe we can get an exception. So they do attempt to charge him with murder under the new forensic evidence. However, in July of the same year, Britain's Privy Council rejects the attempt to prosecute Mundy again, citing the double jeopardy law. Justice Smith's trial for the murder of Rebecca Middleton begins in November of 1998. The lead prosecutor on this case um, basically told the Middleton family, like, I've never lost a case. I'm like, I'm going to get justice for your daughter. I've got this. 
and then left the island like a week or two before the trial and leaves it with a new prosecutor. <laughs> Literally just leaves. Okay, this is like how I feel like when people are like have a pregnancy and they have the same doctor the whole time and they just like go out of town and then some rando delivers their baby. It's like What? How? What? That happens all the time. Oh, I know. But I- it's like the fact that like you do all this work, you build this rapport, mm-hmm. you know exactly the plan, and then at the last minute you're like Never mind. Yeah, I double booked, I'm gonna be away. Jesus. So yeah, they left like a newbie to take over the case. Yep. Um the strongest evidence that the prosecution had in this case against Smith was the knife that had been found from a block in his home, but it didn't really prove anything. Um like, he did have a knife that was missing from the set. But, like, if we don't have a knife to compare it to, he could just be missing a knife. Right. Like, there's nothing... <laughs> Which, I mean, I've lost a knife in a move. I've broken a knife. Yeah. It happens. The prosecution argued at this trial that two people were involved in the murder, and even though Mundy's DNA was the DNA that was found on Becky... Um, the science proved that he couldn't have committed the crime alone. So they were hmm. still trying to get a murder conviction based basically on the fact that they were saying it couldn't have been done only by one person. Okay. The issue at this trial was is, that... Is, wait, is there a reason why it couldn't have been just one person? It, or is that just what they're leaning into as a defense? That's I think all. they're just leaning into it, but... Okay, because yeah. I was going to say, we see multiple... Single individuals kill single individuals. <laughs> the issue at this trial was that, like I said, the knife was the only evidence against Smith. And it basically made the case against Justice Smith entirely circumstantial because there was no physical evidence actually tying him to the crime scene. The witness had placed him near the scene. That didn't really feel like enough. The DNA specifically showed he wasn't at the crime scene, which a defense attorney is going to take and run with. Mm -hmm. I think that there was just too much reasonable doubt that he could have been involved or not. Yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah, so the the defense basically claimed that Smith wasn't there at all on the night of the murder and that Kirk Mundy acted alone and asked for the case to be dismissed. At the end of the trial, the judge, who was Justice Vincent Mirabux, ruled that the quality of the evidence was poor, there was reasonable doubt about what might have transpired that night, and Justice Smith was acquitted. He got oh, okay. nothing. Good. I thought we were talking about the other guy at first, and I was like, wait, wait, what, what? But this means that between the two men, because I don't think that it's like disputed it's only, that what, Justice five years Smith was there. Like he, we know he was on the bike. I don't think there's a lot of like people that think he wasn't there at all. I do think a lot of people believe that Kirk Mundy was the main offender. I just, I don't think it's fair to say that this other guy wasn't involved at all. Like you were obviously there. We know you were. But you can't have two accessories and no. No. So, like, it just doesn't make sense. This means that between the two men, five years would be served for the absolutely brutal kidnapping, rape, and murder of a 17-year-old girl. Fuck's sakes. Like, that's brutal. It's disgusting that this isn't the only, like, that this isn't 
uncommon. I know. Dr. Michael Baden, who's a forensic pathologist, re-examined the autopsy and learned that Becky's body had actually been washed before the autopsy was done and fingernail scrapings hadn't been taken. Dr. Baden's findings revealed that Becky had to have been killed by two people. She had been raped as soon as Mundy and Smith took her to, like, the location that she was found. Based on this pathologist's review of the autopsy, it seemed Becky had tried to get away and was only able to crawl a few feet away. She then had to have been held down by one of the men and tortured. She was then carried to the road where she was later found by Dana. Um, Dr. Baden... So we know she wasn't, like, dragged or anything, so two men would have had to, like, lift her. Is that what he's saying? He said he found grab marks and smears on her ankles, which is why he feels she was picked up and carried. Makes sense. So like I mentioned before, Smith and Mundy were both unable to be retried for Becky's murder. To this day, Dave Middleton believes that the powers that be in Bermuda were more concerned with protecting the island's reputation than securing justice for his daughter. He said, quote, just about everything that could go downhill did go downhill. The attorney general told me he hadn't lost a case in 10 years and was going to get a conviction and left town two weeks before the trial. Dave Middleton, however, was still determined to see the case through and really wanted to try his absolute best at getting justice for his daughter. He says that throughout the process, however, he began to lose hope that Bermuda was ever going to take his daughter's case serious. I could see why. Yeah. And I have a hard time believing that the proper steps were being taken as well. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about those attempts to get the case reopened. Um, Spoiler alert. None of them work. Dave was ready to, to revisit the case at the Court of Appeal in Bermuda. So kind of his first idea was to take Justice Smith's verdict of acquittal back to the Court of Appeal with this new autopsy information that, like, proved that two people had to have been there. Well, because if they could get him on the lesser of charges, it might require the other case to be reopened and reviewed, at least. Mm-hmm. And he figured if he couldn't win the case at the Court of Appeal, that he would take it to the Privy Council in Britain or the European Court of Justice. The decision was appealed to the Privy Council in London in January of 2000, which is Bermuda's highest court. And this court said it found the trial judge's acquittal astonishing. Like, it was definitely shocked that he could have ever... handed that down it was talked down upon like it was scrutinized however it basically said that the judge's ruling had to stand like we don't like it but we can't do anything about it correct like they criticized that the case was thrown out but rejected any attempt to try him again oh i hate when that happens because it's like why criticize it then because it creates a false sense of security in like your own team right and like and your, like your justice system. Like you're just justifying me, but you're not going to see it through. Yeah. is basically what you're saying. 
I hate those kind of things. It's awful. Ugh, I have such a hard time with those. Yeah. Dave Middleton says it really seemed like the police's top priority was to close the case and move on. They didn't want the attention and scrutiny the murder was getting. Um, like I mentioned, the crime rate in Bermuda, Bermuda is also low and the police wouldn't have been that experienced in investigating crimes like this. And it just didn't really seem... we've heard of that a lot. They just didn't really pay attention to the details that they needed to to assure... That they would get a conviction and it really, I think, to the family seemed like they were more interested in assuring people that they could solve a case quickly than solving it properly. Yeah. Right? Like, we can do this. We can find a killer. But like you said, there might have been like a sense of panic having not much experience with this. They're like, Mm -hmm. guys, we got to solve this or this is going to A, kill tourism create a lack of confidence we're going to look incompetent like there's so many layers to it but it's just they did it for the wrong reasons yeah so in 2006 the family of rebecca middleton asked bermuda's director of public prosecutions to revisit evidence for the purpose of bringing sexual assault charges to the case um so nobody was ever charged with the actual sexual assault of rebecca and so they thought maybe if they went that direction and tried for sexual assault charges instead of focusing on the murder that they could get some justice which is fair they probably can and it's definitely creative i I like it the direct roundabout way yeah the director of public prosecutions declined this stating again that the same evidence couldn't be used to prosecute a person twice Later in the year, Chief Justice Richard Ground ruled that there was a legal basis to review the prosecutor's decision, and a hearing was scheduled to take place in early 2007. Around the same time, internationally renowned human rights lawyer Sherry Booth was brought onto the case by Bermuda defense attorney Calvin Hastings Smith, who was the Middleton's lawyer. Um, Sherry Booth is the wife of the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair. So I think there was a thought that because this was such a prominent person that she would really be able to help make a big change in this case. Um, She also argued that Smith's murder charge was wrongfully dismissed and that Mundy should have faced a more serious charge. Still, Bermuda legal authorities would not lay new charges for Becky's murder. So nothing came about this either. Which, I mean, I guess we kind of expect it could be the outcome, but it's still really frustrating. In 2008, Becky's father, Dave, announced that he could no longer finance his battle to get the Bermuda legal system to bring Becky's killers to justice. It was reported that the assistance from Sherry Booth alone ran in at $400 an hour. Holy crap. Yeah. And that was just for her assistance. That's not, doesn't cover any of these huge appeals that he has had to pay for. Because, of course, the Bermuda government and the defense attorneys there aren't funding this. Like, this is only happening because Becky's father is fighting for it and paying for it. And while they were well, able, bankrolling it, yeah, and like they were able to raise some funds in the community, like not enough to cover all of it. 
Um, the last appeal in Bermuda would have at least cost $10,000 and could have gone upwards of seventy-five grand. Dave Middleton suggested exhausting appeals to global courts could cost as much as $300,000, which would be on top of hundreds of thousands of dollars they had already spent on legal fees. He basically said, like, at this point, I would have to sell my home in Ontario to get the government to take me seriously, and that's just, like, a line I'm not willing to cross. I'm not. Yeah, like, remortgaging your home and losing, like, your quality of life because you don't have a safe space to go home to is, that's not, like, you don't care anymore. That's, like, I still need to take care of myself at a point. And I think that his other kids at this point, too, were really giving him, like, the grace of, like, dad, like, it's okay, we gotta let this one go. Like, we need to move on. You've spent so much money, they're not taking you seriously, you've been burned so many times. Like, I think it was just needed another perspective of, like, it's okay, you're not giving up, it's just we're not gonna win this one. You know? Yeah. And I think that's also important that his other kids were there to support him in that and say it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I I just kind of read an article that said, like, you know, I've kept fighting and even my kids are like, why do you keep fighting for this when you keep getting burned? And so it just seems like that was perhaps part of it, you know? Yeah, I look at people like Jeff Buziak, like Lindsay Buziak's dad, Mm -hmm. and I just wonder if he has anyone that's, like, just having active conversations with him about, like, where things are at and his health. Or, like, even just, like, another perspective. I think that I've obviously yeah. never been in that before, but I'm sure that you get really, 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 really wrapped up in it and, like, tunnel-visioned, and sometimes you just need, like, an outside perspective. Yeah. Um, but Dave Middleton was quoted saying, if I wasn't broke, I would stay with it. We all would. The money is the issue. It's the reason why we're quitting Um, The second reason he said that they were stopping the legal battle was that he believed the Bermuda government just didn't want to participate in the process at all. They just wanted it to go away. Um, And we will see that as well in a decision that was made after the fact. Um, Mm -hmm. Bermuda authorities have since admitted that the Middleton family suffered a great injustice While he was unable to get justice for his daughter's murder, uh, Dave Middleton has received an apology on behalf of the prosecution, the government of Bermuda, um, that basically the case was rigged from the start and that this case just didn't progress the way that it should have. Uh, Wait for this slap in the face. Ten years after the murder, Bermuda, quote, I'm going to use heavy air quotes for the word compensated, the Middleton family for pain and suffering. I'm going to let you give me a guess of how much the check was for that they gave. Well, the fact that you say it's a slap in the face. And heavy air quotes on compensated. I don't know. I want to say, like. $5,000. $5,000. Less. $2,840.63 Canadian is what the Middleton family was compensated for the pain and suffering caused by this fucking botched investigation, prosecution, all of the above. Twenty eight hundred dollars. Oh, I feel like a little nauseous. I know. 
Oh my god. I know. And I don't know if that's like I don't That is I will admit that I am not I didn't Google it and I'm not up to date on like if there's a if the exchange rate is wildly low or something. Wouldn't they just use euros though? Because they are a British territory. So euros are worth quite a bit more than Canadian money, meaning that they technically compensated them less. Should we Google I that? I don't know that. Gonna look up. I do not know that for a fact. I'm mm-hmm. literally looking up like Bermuda currency. Okay. Thank you. Because I didn't. I don't know why I didn't think of it because I was like, that's disgusting. What the f? Oh, they actually do have the bur. They have their own currency? Okay. Okay. So maybe I'm wrong. The Bermudian dollar, it's called. Okay. And like. And it's a one to one with American currency right now. So one Bermudian dollar right now is equal to 1.37 Canadian dollars. But it's on par to American, it says. So the fact that, like, they just are like the states. So the fact that for some big case like that, they just handed over twenty eight hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ! Literally ridiculous. Yeah, I was pretty. I was pretty like, why bother? Literally, why bother? Yeah. At, so I am kind of coming to the end, but we'll finish it off. Um, at the time of Becky's murder, Kirk Mundy, who was a Jamaican native, was actually on bail for the armed robbery of a bank of Butterfield security van, which he robbed in November of 1995. He was eventually... He robbed like you yeah, know, like a bank security banks kind, kind of, of like sometimes have like vans that they like transport money in like baby driver kind of like a brink security van sure so he robbed one of those so he's on bail for that crime when he killed Becky Kirk Mundy was eventually tried found guilty and served sixteen years for this crime in 1997 so he did serve jail time just not for the murder of Becky well he guess he served five years for the murder of Rebecca Kirk Mundy's sentence was increased by 18 months in 2009 when he was found with marijuana inside his prison cell in 2002 uh, Justice Smith was convicted of stabbing a woman outside yeah, a bar great so so glad we let him off scot-free in 2017, Kirk Mundy was, like, he finished all of his prison sentences and he was deported back to Jamaica. Mundy was flown by private jet to Jamaica in October of 2017 after more than two decades in Bermuda prisons. A spokeswoman for the Ministry of Home Affairs said, quote, the deportee was transported via private jet due to associated security risks for transit via the UK, US, or Canada. So basically, they thought he was going to flee. I could see why. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. Yeah. As another just, let's just say, like, knife, uh, let's just, like, twist of the knife that proves that the Bermuda government wants nothing to do with this case and does not want to be associated with it. It's all about the tourism. In recent years, 
So this case was covered on an investigation discovery series called, I believe, Murder in Paradise. Ah, Yeah, the series is called Murder in Paradise on ID, if you want to watch it. Um, So this film recently-ish was being created about the case, and Bermuda officials found out and removed the film's permits. From the documentary crew. And we're like, nope, you're not allowed to work on that here. Wow. The Home Affairs Minister, Michael Fahey, cited reputational risks to the country. So again, as the reason tourism why... will be affected. A hundred percent. Because they annoying. want nothing to do with this. Disgusting. This was a very controversial decision because I will say that while the Bermuda government has really dropped the effing ball in this case, the pub, the Bermuda public has been very supportive of the Middleton family and people can see what the right thing also is. disagrees. Yeah, like they do. They also disagree with how their country or how their province has handled this. I totally get it. There's things that we've seen locally here that we're like. We don't support mm-hmm. how it's handled. Yeah. So the the Murder in Paradise documentary, if you're able to find it and watch it on ID, uh, it includes interviews with former police commissioner Colin Coxell, um, locals such as they do interview Dana Rawlings and Dean Lottimore, who we talked about. Dana was the man that found Becky, and Dean, of course, was the guy who um, Jasmine was bike. riding on the bike yeah. with. Dana Rawlings was one of the group of friends. Oh, never mind. I already said that. <laughs> Get that no. Please. Okay. Dr. Carol Schumann, who has written extensively about this case, said that while Bermuda does well to see the last of Kirk Mundy, his exit neither removes the island's shame regarding its ju- judicial handling of the murder of Becky, nor does it bring Becky back. She also said of the decision to not allow film crew crews in Bermuda, quote, Bermuda government's failure to allow the production company to film on the island simply serves as another example of the pathology surrounding management of this case. The production company faced one roadblock after another, first the refusal to allow on-island presence and then the refusal by a majority of those involved in the case to speak on camera. With such transparent excuses. She went on to say that in her opinion, um, Bermuda kind of like rejecting involvement in this documentary actually resulted in a better film because the case is really, really complicated and that some of it could get lost in those extra details. She said, quote, Becky's story being told by her parents and Rick and Jasmine Means with whom she was staying there, as well as the specific portrayal of the events of Becky's death, brings the impact of the murder and its handling to the viewer far more effectively than arguments by the many politicians or litigators who who refuse to assist would have done. So basically she's saying that, like, jokes on you, the film is way more powerful without Yeah, you. I would much rather hear, like, first-hand accounts and hear the story told from people than have the detectives and officers and people in the court well, systems like just being like, wah, 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 and defending yeah. their shitty actions. I mean, we see that all the time on Netflix documentaries, and it's incredibly infuriating. And she just watched a documentary, and it was like, the lady 
telling the story is so captivating that Mm -hmm. it's so good. I'll have to find out, remember what it is and send it to you. It's worth the watch. It's impeccable. This case has never been forgotten by the Bermudian public, and many people there still want to see someone answer for Becky's death. Becky's family has never forgotten about her, and she is very much still a part of their family. The family celebrates her birthday every year, and her brother's children bear her names. One of her brother's daughters has Rebecca as a middle name. Her other brother's daughter used the name Jane as a middle name. Jasmine Means also went on to give her daughter the middle name Rebecca, and the man who found Becky that morning named his future daughter Rebecca, and she goes by Becky. That one's really sweet. Like, the family members, you expect little things and sentiments and friends and stuff, but that guy, oh, oh, so sweet. Yeah, Yeah, and, and Dana Rawlings actually... Um, I didn't I didn't really go too much into this because I do think watching the documentary is really it's, I, I thought it was really well done. So I left some stuff to the documentary. But and this case was already so long when I wrote it. But Dana Rawlings, actually, at the beginning, he was scared to name the names of the two guys um, because he was scared of his own like retaliation. Mm-hmm. And he eventually was like brave enough and was just like Becky this girl deserves somebody to answer for these crimes and gave up the names um even though he was like really terrified that there would be retaliation against him so yeah then going on to like name your daughter um Becky I just think it obviously had like a really profound impact on his life and is really sweet oh The scholarships in both Belleville, Ontario and Bermuda also bear Rebecca's name. So there are scholarships in her name in both places. And that's why I say like the Bermudian public really um, supports Becky and her family. Like most, most of them. And I'm sure there's outliers there always is, but like on, on the whole, it seems like the public is very supportive of the family and also thinks the handling of the case was ridiculous. Which is so good because there's so many times where, and I'm not saying it's common, but we do hear that a country, if a tourist is hurt there or killed there, they automatically kind of go like, well, hold on, don't blame our country. But it's nice to see that they're supportive. So to finish the case, when the moon is full, Rebecca's mom, Cindy, remembers back to just a few days before Becky left for Bermuda. Cindy says that on that day, Becky was worried about getting homesick and her mother reassured her that all she needed to do was look at the moon and she would know her family was thinking of her. And that, my friends, is the murder and awful judicial handling Mm -hmm. of Rebecca Middleton. That was horrendous, the way they handled that. They dropped the ball over and over and over. And that two days till the DNA. Oh, my God. It's one of those cases that, like, really does just keep getting worse. Yeah. Like, I used, I remember when we, like, first started the but show, wait, that used to be, like, a catchphrase that I made. But wait, it gets worse. Um, I haven't used it in a while, but this is one of those cases where, like, yeah, it's so rough to watch because it's like this family just gets burned and burned and burned and then burned again. And it's like, holy shit. We didn't do not, not one thing was done right. In no, this case. not at all. 
By the people that were supposed to be doing it. Yeah, by the people they trusted to take accountability and just handle the information properly. Yeah, and it's like, it's not like there was no evidence. You have DNA. Well, some people just don't know what to do. (laughs) Anyway, so, uh... That's it. I got, I really have nothing. This case, like, really took it out of me. I feel like you've Um, also got, like, a little bit of vacation brain where you know you're about to check out this week, so you just have a lot going on, like you said. You have a calendar of tasks. So. I will say that mentally I haven't allowed myself to check out yet because I know I still have three days worth of tasks. That's fair. Like, I I can't, I physically can't check out or I will not get it done. This is being an adult. Like, you have to plan a Menti B into your schedule at this point. Like, like I, I will pencil in crying yeah. in the shower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like, oh, where can I carve right. out time? Oh, I'll switch the laundry and then I'll cry like for ten minutes before I start the dishes. Schedule existential dread, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Existential dread is canceled, and for now, we just, like, love our lives and are happy to be here. Okay. Katie's like, I don't subscribe to that. When this cold or flu that I have is completely gone, I may subscribe. Ask me in a few days. But until then, where can people find us? Where can they follow us? Uh, Yeah, you can follow us on Instagram, please, at Podcast by Proxy. You can also follow us at Podcast by Proxy on TikTok and Facebook. Um, Threads, if Katie's still using that, uh, perhaps. Send us a case suggestion. You can send them on Instagram or preferred on email with a subject line case suggestion. We do have quite a few. So thank you to everyone who has been sending them. I think we're like stocked up on cases for a while, but like keep sending them because they go at this point in my life. They do go really fast. I mean, we're here once a week. And also I just find I'm getting to the point where like I half the time, unless there's a case I really want to cover I just go straight to the case suggestions yeah. because I'm, like, too tired to <laughs> find anything else. Yeah, I think I've done a few of my own accord or, like, one that someone recommended in person. But I'm definitely going to probably hit up the case suggestion folder next week. And so send them yeah. on over, people. Yeah, but uh, I will be posting a little bit on our story from my trip. I'm going to Hawaii, um, so I will make sure to, like, share that with everybody a little bit on the podcast Instagram. So definitely follow us there if you just, like, want FOMO on the beach. Um, I do. And we won't be missing any weeks because this is technically my vacation week episode. So we, we, uh, we will still be giving you weekly content even though I will be gone for almost two weeks. Um Two weeks. You deserve it, though. It's much needed. Oh, boy. I I know. I can't wait for you. I'm so excited. I'm going to live vicariously through you. My suitcase has literally been packed for a week. Well, it's nice when you're traveling in an off-season, so you don't need those clothes. It really allows you the flexibility to plan and be, like, really ready in advance, which is so nice. It's true. It snowed here a week ago, so I can confirm I haven't been wearing bathing suits (laughs) or shorts. The funny thing is that doesn't always stop you. You would just be wearing them in the house. So, I know. Okay. All right. Have an excellent week, everyone. Thank you for being here. We will talk to you again next week. Tell your friends. You guys have really been coming in hard with the episode downloads. Love Um, it. Yeah, I just, I don't know. We had, like, kind of an increase a while ago, and I was like, oh, maybe that was, like, situational, and people will, like, drop off. And you really haven't dropped off. Most of you have stayed here. So, like, thank you for being here. You're here for the long haul, you lifers. 
if you've been here for the long haul, like, really thank you for being here. You're a trooper. Um, but yeah, if you mean, like, you have a friend that wants a new true crime podcast, yeah. so am our way. Hit that little share button. If you feel like it. Anyway, I'll stop rambling. Okay. Love you, bye. Okay. Love you, bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. <gasps> okay. Bye. Bye. How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fuck me.